Thank you, Sue. Beautifully read. Hello, everyone. My name is Nick. I'm your congregational pastor here at 10 a.m. And I got to say it again. I'll say it every week for the next 10 years of my life. It's so good that you're here in person. Um, as we open up the Word, how about I just give this time to the Lord? Father, please, would you speak to us? Spirit of power, would you fill us? Would you lead us to see Jesus? Amen. Amen. I wonder, if you had 24 hours left to live, what would you do? Seriously, think about it. What would you do? Would you get out your bucket list and go skydiving or um, to that all-you-can-eat buffet that you've put off for a while? I think that's where I would go. Um, What would you do? Would it change if the fact was you knew you were going to die? You knew you had 24 hours, and so you had to kind of live with that baggage, with the grief, and with the fear, with that sense of impending death over your head. It's pretty weighty. It's a pretty big question. I wonder what you would do. As I was thinking about it, apart from potentially an all-you-can-eat buffet, I was thinking the one thing that I would do is I would gather all of my loved ones around me, I would sit in my lounge room, and I would just weep with them. And I'd hope that they would be there to comfort me, to, to walk with me, to take me through to those final, final hours of my life. But what does Jesus do? I think sometimes we can disconnect our experience from Jesus. because, like, oh, he's just the infinite son of God. He can do anything, right? But this is a real man who's completely aware that in less than 24 hours, he's going to be dead. How's he going to get there? His best friend's going to betray him. And he's there. He does gather his loved ones around him. He's in this room with his 12 closest friends. But instead of getting down and weeping and asking them to comfort him, he takes a whole different approach. Whereas you and I would spend our last 24 hours upon ourselves, Jesus spends his last 24 hours upon them. And let me say, Jesus spends his last 24 hours upon you. It's amazing. It's crazy that he would do this. You know, it's a classic story that gets told at scripture classes, that gets whipped out in church all the time. Jesus gets down on his hands and his feet, and he starts washing feet. It's it's weird. It's kind of uncomfortable. I actually thought about inviting some more of you up here to wash your feet. We did that earlier this year, but does anyone want to volunteer? No, no. no. I don't want to touch your feet because it's kind of gross, right? And that's how Jesus spends his last 24 hours. Why? Well, if you were here last week, we looked at the way of Jesus. And the word that kind of shone out of the way of Jesus is that it's unexpected. It's not how you and I would normally go about life. And that just continues here. The way of Jesus is unexpected. But the word that shines out of John 13 is that the way of Jesus is the way of love. The way of Jesus is the way of love. Look with me at verse 1. This is perhaps one of my favorite phrases in the entire Bible. So you might want to memorize this one. Just the second half. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Isn't that precious? Having loved those who were his own in the world, he loved them till the end. That's what Jesus is all about. He looks upon us and he pours himself out for us. And there's a beautiful certainty there that he loved his own while he was in the world and he loved him straight to the end. The way of Jesus is the way of love. Last week we saw the hour has come. This is the beginning of the end. His eyes are on the cross. He's going to die. And every little word that he speaks, every little action that he takes is all towards that moment of crucifixion and death so that you might be saved, so that you might be loved. 
So we're just going to walk through this, this beautiful chapter. We actually looked at it earlier this year. Um, you might not remember that because sermons, you get so many of them, but it was really wonderful. You would remember it because someone washed someone's feet and it was weird, but we're just going to walk through it and look at the big picture and think about Jesus, the way of love. So the first thing to say is that the way of Jesus is the way of love and serving. The way of Jesus is the way of love and serving. We've already flagged it. Jesus starts washing people's feet. It gets a little bit weird, but I wonder if you've thought about how outrageous it is, not just that he's getting in between people's toes with a sponge and trying to get the grime out, but the fact that Jesus is not just an ordinary man, he is the eternal, everlasting God. He's making a statement here. He's he's getting down, taking off his clothes in front of other people, already a weird thing to do, finding the servant's towel, wrapping it around himself, and he starts washing the feet of his disciples. And that shines because he's not just a master. He's not just a rabbi. He's not just a Lord. This is God himself, right? And why can we say that the way of Jesus is the way of love? Because God is love, and it's on display for you right there. But it's equally outrageous because this was the job of a servant. This was, you would be expected that if you were going to go to a dinner party like this, that they would have organized someone of low, 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 low status to be there ready to wash your feet because you knew your feet were going to get dirty. And so Jesus is really intentionally modeling something for us here. He's taking on the posture of a servant to say, that's who I am. I didn't come to be served, but to serve. I didn't come to demand your worship and your glory. I came to give you worship and glory as you are lifted up into heaven as the the sons and daughters of the living God. I've come to bridge this gap that exists, the huge gap between God and people, and I want to draw you to myself. Jesus comes as a servant. What I love about this whole story, right, is have a look with me at your Bibles, that this is really just like a living metaphor, a living metaphor of the gospel. It's a living metaphor of love. Like you could just preach this and this could be like a little Bible in itself, right? Have a look with me. You look at at verse chapter three, sorry, sorry, verse three, Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God, i.e. Jesus has all power, all authority, all influence. Look at these really important words in verse four. So he got up from the meal. It's because of all the power, authority, and influence that Jesus has that he gets up and serves. It would be meaningless in the eternal perspective if I was to get down and wash your feet. But because of who Jesus is, this has meaning. This is powerful. Look at this. Verse 4, he gets up from the meal. He takes off his outer clothing he wraps a towel around his waist. It's like this metaphor where he's, he's taking off everything that he could claim for himself. He could demand worship and obedience. He takes that off. He puts it to the side and he says, I don't want you right now to come and fall at my feet. I want to come and fall at your feet. So he puts a towel on, assuming he doesn't even have a shirt on right now. Right? He's demeaning himself on purpose. He puts this towel on and he comes down, verse 5, he pours water into a basin, begins to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. You can just picture him slowly taking his time, just with a smile on his face, just wiping away the grime and the dirt. And you can also picture the disciples' face of just like grimacing, like, what the heck is happening? Are you seeing this? I'm seeing this too, man. This is disgusting, right? You can imagine this is a weird scene, but it's tender and beautiful as you realize what Jesus is doing here. And just a quick word, if you're hanging out in the ancient Near Eastern culture, of Jesus' day, 
This is the day before antifungal cream. I'm just put that before you. This is, this is the day where most people aren't wearing enclosed shoes. They're walking through unbound roads, getting real disgusting stuff all over them. Jesus just tenderly, quietly, patiently washes their feet. And he keeps going. Have you thought about this? Who does he wash? He washes Judas. Right? When you say the name, it kind of has the ring of Satan, right? Like Judas, right? He washes the betrayer's feet. It even says that he's already under the influence of Satan. And yet Jesus knows this. And he gets down and he serves him. He washes Peter's feet. Who's Peter? He's the dude who's going to deny Jesus right before everyone. All the other disciples, they have nowhere to be found when Jesus is being killed. These are his closest friends who abandoned him. Jesus knows it's coming and he shows them the way of love. Because that's who Jesus is. He's a servant. And that's why Jesus came into the world. This is why this is a living metaphor. He didn't come to those who already loved him. He didn't come to friends. He came to enemies. He didn't come for perfect people. He came for broken, sinful people like you and me. He didn't come that they might fall at his feet. He came so that they might experience him falling at their feet. Loving them, caring for them, drawing for them, caring for their needs. And then, verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Isn't that awesome? that he, he stoops down from his glory and power, puts on the towel, serves, wipes feet, and when he finishes his work of service, he stands back up and he returns to his place as master, lord, power, ruler, authority, puts on the outer robe, and that's Jesus dying, rising again, exalted in heaven. All knees will bow at the, at the presence of Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus gives himself completely without abandon, but then rises again in glory. And that's the way of love. This is a metaphor of the entire Gospels, uh, of every single thing that matters. You can find it all in John 13. And then verse 15, this is where it gets a little bit confronting. He says, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done. And I don't think he meant feet washing. Like maybe he did. Maybe we should, after church, go out of the courtyard and look after each other. And maybe it could be a really good reminder, like communion, where we you know, really look after one another and show that we're servants. But I don't think he's talking about washing feet. I think he's saying, as Jesus walks this way of lowering himself and serving and loving and giving himself and eventually finding glory, he's calling you, will you follow me? Will you make the way of Jesus your way? Will you make the way of love your way? Will you make the way of serving your way? You don't do it to gain anything in this world, but look at Jesus, lifted up right back at his place. That's the promise. We don't serve with no hope in mind. We serve with hope. In fact, verse 17, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. There's blessing in serving others. Jesus says it's better to give than to receive. You'll experience that in the moment. But there's blessing in the fact that you are working not for these 80 years of life that you may or may not have. You're working for an eternal glory that Christ will give you if you follow his way. Let me ask you, is that who you are? Are you a servant? Do you, do you lower yourself? Do you give of yourself? The vision for our church is that we, we would be a people who are living for Jesus 
and loving like Jesus. Kind of catchy, right? I like that. Gets in your head. That's what you want from a vision statement, right? Do you believe that? If you had a single statement to define your church, you would hope that it would be the very central thing that we are. Are we a people that live this? Now, I want to encourage you. I do see it consistently. And the funny thing, when people are servants, they're often very humble about it, and they hide it. They put it to the side. So I just want to honor all of you who are serving in the quiet places where no one is seeing you. You're just apprenticing Jesus and walking after his way. I'm so thankful for you. But if that is who we are, we need to press deeply into this. i got three little quick tips for you so that we can embody the way of Jesus. One, serve those lower than yourselves. Serve those lower than yourselves. It's very easy to bow at the feet of someone glorious and powerful and wonderful. But it's when you get down on hands and feet and love someone who can offer you nothing, that's when you live like Jesus. Two, serve people who don't deserve it. It's not just because someone was a good and faithful servant that you get down and serve their feet. It's not because they you know, took your place on the roster and took over Bible reading that you do something nice for them. No, we serve the people who don't deserve it. Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners, enemies, and make them friends. We serve not because it's something that gets us anything, but because we want to serve those who don't deserve it like Jesus did. And three, please, this is so important, serve without recognition. Don't serve so that people will praise you. There was that line, I'll quickly read it for you again, from, from last week's passage, where it talks about some people who had believed in Jesus but were afraid to tell others about it. It said they loved human praise more than praise from God. And I think in the end, that's what cut them off from God. Don't serve for recognition. Serve like Jesus in the upper room, away from everyone else, loving those who don't deserve it. That's the way of Jesus. It's about love and serving. But the second thing about the way of Jesus is that it's about love and repentance. Love and repentance. You might not have heard that word, but it's a very important word. So I want you to really grab hold of this. Um, If that whole Jesus getting down, washing feet and getting back up was a living metaphor of the gospel of everything that's important about Jesus, the little interaction that you might have missed between Peter and Jesus is actually a little living metaphor of the daily Christian life. It's so, it tells so much about what does it mean to actually be a believer in Jesus and living like Jesus. Have a look with me quickly. We'll race through it. Verse 6, he comes to Simon Peter finally after washing all the others' feet. And Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And I feel that. You know, if I was Peter, I think I'd be like, get away from me, dude. I should be washing your feet. You're the, you're the guy that I gave up my life to follow. Jesus replies very tenderly, calmly, gently, because he's Jesus. What a wonderful man. He says, you don't realize what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And this is where Peter kind of, you know, he's the belligerent, you know, passionate one who doesn't really know what's going on. Like, no, you shall never wash my feet. I mean, Jesus was trying to be kind here, dude. He was trying to show you that this is important, but he didn't really listen. And so then Jesus says, okay, I'll be really clear. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me, right? Surely that should be the end of the exchange. Okay, Peter, get in your place and listen, right? Jesus has got something to teach you. But then Peter goes on again, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Wash all of me. And Jesus, again, just is so tender and helpful. He says, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. And he goes on to say that's referring to Judas. But these other believers who Jesus is washing their feet, he's saying, already washed you. You have already been completely and utterly forgiven. You have already been cleansed of all your sin. You are saved. Christ has a hold of you. 
and he will never let you go. You are already washed clean. But as you walk through the grimy, sinful world that this is, as you wrestle with some of the brokenness that continues to be in you, and I know that it's there even if I don't get to see it all the time, you're going to get a little dirty. Your feet are going to get some stuff on it. But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus has washed you. You need to hear this. There is certainty for the believer who has put their faith in Jesus. You will stuff it up. You will fall apart. You will even sin willfully, and you'll just be so shameful and guilty because you've turned against your Lord Jesus. But Jesus' word here is you have been washed and cleansed. No one will ever take that from you. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, Those who the Father has given me I will draw to myself, and no one will take them from me. Do you know that, that Jesus has a hold on you that's so much tighter than your hold on him? But we need to hear the word that he gives Peter, that you will get your feet dirty. We've already talked about it. If you lived in this world, you had sandals on, and you're walking through some dirty places. You're going to get stuff on you, and if you don't get those things cleaned, you're just going to continue to get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier, and perhaps if you don't deal with that dirt, eventually your whole body's going to get dirty, Right? Jesus is offering us a little, little metaphor that's beautiful for repentance. We need to come back to Jesus consistently. Completely cleaned, cleansed, forgiven. But if you separate yourself from Jesus, you'll just continue to get dirtier and dirtier and dirtier. But if you come to him consistently and let him wash you, and this is important, you don't wash yourself, you don't sort yourself out, you don't fix your own problems. If you come to Jesus He will tenderly get on his knees again and again and again. He will make you completely clean. It's beautiful. But I think we need to hear the warning of Peter. Peter's first problem, he said, don't wash me, Jesus. I'm too sinful. You're not allowed to, right? I think sometimes we can have that approach where we just get so caught up in this world and we feel so guilty and shameful that we just want to keep Jesus as a a distance as if we didn't deserve him. But that's the point. You don't. You don't deserve Jesus. You didn't when you became a Christian. You don't now. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Let him wash you. Or maybe you won't let Jesus wash you because you're feeling prideful. Because you think, man, I fell into that sin again, but you know what? I'm going to put these 17 things in place, and therefore I'm not going to fall into that sin again, and Jesus can be proud of me again. But that's not the way of Jesus. Jesus wants to wash you. We can't be like Peter who says, don't wash me. But then equally, we can't be like Peter who says, well, just wash me completely. Right? I think some of us do this. We fall into patterns of sin and failure, and it's like we need to have a whole conversion experience again. It's like every Sunday we wish there was an altar call where we could come down the front and give our life to Jesus again and again and again and again and again. I see this with young people all the time as the youth pastor. I'm like, you need to know the certainty that you have been saved. Yes, you stuffed up, but Jesus has already loved you. He just wants to help you, wash you again, help you move forward again. That's true for you. That's true for you. You don't need to be washed again. You don't need to keep Jesus at a different distance. We need to have these regular, consistent moments where we invite Jesus to wash us again. It involves owning our sinfulness, not pretending that there's no dirt. We're perfect. You know, Ed beautifully put it, that we hide things so that you don't even know a marriage is falling apart until divorce lawyers are involved. On the North Shore, we love to present like things are perfect. Don't do that with Jesus. Acknowledge your sin. Let him wash you. And he will. He'll do it. I think this needs to be more a part of our daily Christian life than it already is. I think even if you know Jesus and you do repent consistently, we kind of wait till we have those big sins that we think are really bad. Then we come to Jesus. But day to day, we just kind of keep on cruising. I want to suggest that every single day, there needs to be a moment where you sit in the presence of Jesus and just 
let him wash your feet. You turn back to him. For me, I've tried to find three spaces in my day where I do that. I tend to miss the boat sometimes and it doesn't happen, but this might be helpful to you. Um, Every morning I try to spend time with the Lord. Notice I didn't say Bible reading and prayer. I do read my Bible and I do pray, but I'm trying to spend time in the presence of God. And it's in that time when I'm meeting with God that I want to just stop and allow him to see my sin and wash my feet. Whenever I go for a drive to work or to anything or go for a walk where I'm by myself and I have some time, just a short prayer of just allowing Jesus to, to wash me. Again, again, again. And lastly, minutes before I drift off to sleep, sometimes it's this like, intelligible slur of like, oh, Jesus, forgive me. You know, like you're really, really tired. But it's just having these moments in your day where it can consistently happen rather than waiting for a, your life to fall apart and then you come back to Jesus. Following the way of Jesus means ordering our whole life after Jesus. So let's make that a priority. We need to be a people who repent. And lastly... Really important as we consider the story of Jesus. The way of Jesus is of love, betrayal, and hope. Love, betrayal, and hope. Repentance becomes essential when you consider these 12 disciples. The only one who doesn't completely stuff it up, doesn't even get a name in here, it just says the one who Jesus loves. Wouldn't you love to be referred to that in the Bible? If I was in the Bible, that's who I want to be known as, the one who Jesus loved. It happened when they were trying to work out who was going to betray Jesus. Have a look. Verse 22, his disciples stared at one another, lost to know what he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon told him, ask him which one he means. That's John, the guy who wrote the gospel. He doesn't desert Jesus. He's there at the cross and in fact, Jesus in love looks upon John and actually says, my mother Mary, you John, the, you know, the orphan, together you will be a new family. It's this beautiful tender moment. But all the other 11 guys completely stuff it up. You've got Judas. We need to consider Judas, who completely betrays Jesus to the point where verse 27, it says that Satan entered into him. We love to distance ourselves from Judas. But I think Judas is a warning to us. It is possible to spend face-to-face time with Jesus. It is possible to see his miracles. It's possible to hear him speak audibly to you. It's possible to give your life up and follow him and still be more of Satan than of Jesus. It's clear here that he's completely sold out for Satan, right? Right? But I wonder, were there points in his three years of following Jesus where he was honest? He actually loved Jesus. Was it a slow turning and turning and turning, wandering and wandering and wandering, until finally this is where he got to? We don't know. But I think that's the point. We need to look at the example of Judas and just know that this this is terrifying. That any of us who look like we're believers in every single sense, could be the people who completely desert Jesus entirely. Now, I think that's entirely compatible with what I said earlier, that if you've accepted Jesus, he will hold on to you. That's completely true. But we need to wrestle with our experience. Just because Jesus is holding on to us doesn't mean we just like lift our hands up and go, well, Jesus, take the wheel. No worries, right? We need to walk after him and live our whole life towards him. And we need to heed the warning of Judas. Then you've got Peter. He's got zeal. He's got boldness. He's all over this thing. Every time he's given a chance to talk, he's like, yeah, team Jesus. We're going to go all the way to Jesus. You're going to die, Jesus. I'm going to come with you. 
He's really happy to be bold and faithful when he's in a position of comfort and strength. But when those things are taken away from him, and Jesus has been betrayed and, and handed over to the authorities, and he's standing before people who are like, hey, weren't you with Jesus? What does he do? Completely denies him. And I got to tell you, this really speaks to me because I can be a loud, bold follower of Jesus, right? If you've heard me preach before, you're kind of like, shut up, Nick, you're really loud. Stop yelling at me. You know, I know, I know. Um, The question I need to consistently ask myself, is this the empty boldness of one caught up in the moment while I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ, when I'm singing praises to Jesus and experiencing his presence? Is it a boldness of experience or is it a boldness of commitment to Jesus? where I'm going to actually follow him through to death, because that's what he calls us to. He calls us to die with him. But the beautiful thing about Peter is he does deny Jesus spectacularly, and yet Jesus tenderly restores him. Chapter 21, there's this wonderful moment where Jesus, Peter, Peter denied Jesus three times. Jesus asks Peter three times, will you feed my sheep? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's this kind of moment of just restoring him and drawing him back. You get to Acts 2, and he's standing up in front of thousands of people declaring that Jesus is the Lord. You killed him. Turn back to him, right? This is the same Peter. And so there's hope for me, <laughs> the bold guy who gets carried away with experience. But it's, it's a moment where we need to acknowledge that we need the Spirit to fill us, to give us the faith and commitment that we don't have in ourselves, and we need to count the cost, It's very easy to follow Jesus when you're here. Much harder when things start to fall apart. Have you counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus? Lastly, the disciples, they literally just are nowhere to be found. We don't really even get to hear them denying Jesus because they ran so fast that we couldn't get a word from them, right? And yet they all become the early leaders of the church because the Spirit is powerful to take broken people like you and me and take us on a journey of faithfulness. And the entire world has been drawn into the gospel of Jesus because he stirred these 11 deserters to follow him faithfully. Isn't there hope there? That even as you and I wrestle with our inner brokenness and, you know, we're struggling, we're trying to work out what does it mean to count the cost? What does it mean to follow Jesus? He's given us the spirit to come after him. So I think that's what we need to hear from these guys. We need to hear that we need to count the cost. But we also need to hear the hope that it's not in ourselves that we stand, but in this power of the Spirit. That's the way of Jesus. It's the way of love. And so he bookends it. He started by saying he would love them to the end. In verse 35 or 34, he says, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is it. That's our way. We follow Jesus. We follow the way of love. We serve. We repent. We put our hope in him. We chase after him. I don't know if you've thought about this, but this whole year we've dedicated to be the year of loving your neighbor. And I worry that perhaps in the crazy year that we've experienced, that's kind of fallen off our agenda. When stuff gets hard, we stop looking to others and we just retreat inward. I just want to, as we've heard this message of the love of Jesus, I just want to give you 30 seconds in the quiet of your own heart. Maybe you need to get your phone out and write this down. Think of the two or three people in your life that you can demonstrate the love of Jesus to. Give you 30 seconds. Just who could we put this into practice with?
the five steps that Ed and the mission team really beautifully crafted for us to help us love our neighbor really well with this. I find this so helpful as I just tackle the unknown of loving people. There's five, five steps that we as a church are trying to commit to. We want to pray for them. We want to connect with them. We want to eat with them because good conversation has around, happens around food. We want to share our story with them, share Jesus with them. And we want to invite them. Invite them to Alpha, invite them to church, invite them to something. We say every Sunday is a good Sunday to bring your friend to church. I really believe that. Let's pray for our friends, family, neighbors, connect, eat, share, invite. Because the way of Jesus is the way of love. And we are a church that's about living for Jesus and loving like Jesus. This all feels really beyond us at times, I think, when you hear this wonderful picture of love that we fall short of. And I think we need to practice that rhythm of repentance that we just talked about. So we're going to together confess our sins. It's going to come up on the screen, a prayer of confession. Um, and the band's going to jump up now as we head into a time of worshiping the Lord. Let's pray this prayer together. Most merciful God, we humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way. We have done wrong and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us. Wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. We recognize that your heart is inclined to the vulnerable, both in our midst and beyond in the wider community. Forgive us for not caring well for those who struggle to care for themselves, for widows, orphans, the homeless, refugees, and other people living on the edge of society. Make us more like Jesus so that we might love like Jesus. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we might live as true disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. God pardons those who humbly repent and truly believe the gospel. Since Jesus died for us, we have peace with God, to whom be praise and honor forever. Amen.